Today we are in our third week of our Relationship Toolbox series and a series where we've been kind of looking at different tools from different professions that help us in our relationships with, with God, with people, with the world, because we can all agree relationships are a little bit tough, right? Yes, yes. And uh, if you say it too loud, the person next to you is like, what? Um, like, yes. But uh, today's tool actually is, it was inspired around Christmas time. Is that, you know, normally these series are planned way ahead of time, and, and I'm always thinking out. And I had one gap that I was like, what do I do with this one? And there was a moment we were out Christmas shopping, and my youngest daughter, Ruby, we were at Five Below kind of doing some stuff, and she came to me so excited. She came running up to me, and she had this little book in her hand, and she's like, Dad, Dad, you've got to see this. And I was like, love books. Like, I'm in. And she's like, no, this book is different. I was like, I love different books. What? Tell me about it. She's like, Dad, it's like a book designed for people like you and me with ADHD. And I was like, what is this gift? And she goes, look. And she opens it up. She goes, Dad, it's got a calendar in it. You can get a calendar. And Dad, look, you can, you can organize your day and, and make a to-do list. And I was like, oh, a day planner. And she's like, what's that? And I was like, it's what you have in your hand. It's a planner. And she's like, no, it's like an ADHD book. Like, this is for us. And I was like, I, I get what you're saying. She's like, did you know they have this? And I said, actually, Rue, I, I, I did know that they had this. And she's like, really? I said, well, believe it or not, um, when we got home, I said, I, I've been using planners for a really long time. And she's like, wow. I said, yeah. And so I, I actually pulled out one of my old planners and showed her. And this is, this is one of my actual planners from 2004. And what's funny is I, I thought like, wow, this is an old planner. It's almost 20 years old. What was I doing 20 years ago? And what's hysterical is this tool that most people use to figure out what goes on in their day and their time, especially if you are sought after by so many, tells you what you've done with your day. Now, it'd be kind of terrifying if we wrote everything down, wasn't it? Wouldn't it be? Uh, well, I, I do. I write a lot down, everything. And if you're, if you're here and you're like, what in the world is a day planner? And you're in that space, maybe uh, the, the best way to describe it for you might be um, like an elementary school hab. Okay, and it tells you what you have to do, where you got to go, except you don't have to have a parent sign it because you're an adult, right? <laughs> so you don't have to have like... Someone sign your, this is my meetings today. Uh, or a better way to think about it is iCal on your phone, but it's actually on paper, okay? Like you put it down here, and it's amazing. So I looked, and I, when I found this is my 2004, and this was an interesting year when I started looking through it, this week even, because the beginning of the year actually has my wife and I. We had just gotten married. It was our first year of marriage, and we started out, we were living in Deptford, and we were down here in South Jersey. She was studying all her nursing stuff and working as a nurse. I was a barista. I ordered this. It's just funny. It tells me my barista schedule at Starbucks. It also tells me the church that we were involved in and what people we were getting together with. Uh, tells me which nights I was doing my part-time delivery of Chinese food for my neighbors. Um, right up there, they owned a restaurant, Uwen Chow, and that's what I delivered for them. And it was, it was fun. Like, I see what I did, but I see all the family members we hung out with down here. I see all the, the friends that we were getting together with, but sometime in the middle of the year, something shifted, and I can see it right around um, the April-May time that uh, I started having different meetings with people, and those meetings were largely built around getting a new job, 
And so I, I see that I interviewed in June for this job that I ended up taking a couple weeks later in North Jersey as a full-time youth pastor. And I was like, I forgot that happened that year. I, I had no idea. It, it's just gone. As I move into July, I started my job there at my new church in North Jersey on July 18th. And you know, it's funny, it's from July 18th all the way to October 31st. I recognized I only had eight days off. I was away about five times from my wife in that first year at multiple times for multiple days and weeks at a time. And every day is filled with new dinner meetings, new lunch meetings, different things to do at, at the church that I was working at 40 hours a week. And I started to realize, as I look back on this, I was burning out. I don't know how I did all this, but something shifted when I got to November. My day planner told me something shifted. This is just a, a quick look. Something shifted on Mondays. I don't know if you could see what's circled there, if you're maybe close to it. Can you see what's written on the bottom of that day? Off. I recognized I was so burnt within just four months of working at a church. I was so overloaded. I had only taken eight days off and something had to change. I'm so grateful that I could look back to November 2004 and know this is when I started the practice of Sabbathing. This is when I started the practice of trying to take 24 hours off. And what was great is I made that decision because I realized I wasn't able to connect with people the way that I wanted to. I was so tired. And here, here's why I was tired. Maybe you can understand this. When people want your time and people want to be in relationship with you, I thought that I was looking more like Jesus by trying to spend time with everyone, to give equal time to all people because that's what Jesus did, right? He, he met with people all the time. He was always available for people. And so as a follower of Jesus, that's what you do, right? That, that's, you, you, you've got to invest in all the people who are around you. And what I realized is in that time, I wasn't investing in the most important relationships around me and my marriage was taking a hit. My family members outside of that were taking a hit. And when I decided to take 24 hours off, I ticked off a lot of people around me, inside and outside the church. That's just the truth. But I wanted everybody to have equal time because that's what Jesus did, isn't it? No, I was wrong. I was wrong. It's not what he did. And here's the truth. Jesus loved everyone equally. Jesus loved everyone equally, but he didn't spend equal time with everyone. Okay, let me say that again for you just so you could pick it up really quick. Jesus loved everyone equally, but he did not equally, you know, spend equal time with everyone. He just didn't. And since we talk so much about living like Jesus, I thought it would be really important for us here at Crossbridge today in our relationship toolbox series to look at the day planner of our life. Say, how are we spending our time? And you know, Jesus did not have like a 32, you know, CE at a glance calendar like, you know, I've got here 2004. He didn't pull up his iPhone and be like, well, my appointments this week are with, right? So, we've got to look into the biographies of Jesus together to say, how did he spend his time and who did he spend it with? Because Jesus definitely did not spend equal time with people. And it's very similar to last week. One of the passages um, 
instead of saying in just one passage, we're going to look at a couple different things. So if you are not familiar with the Bible and, you're, and I kind of jumped to a place, uh, it, it's okay. These are all biographies that are written by people who follow Jesus. And if you are familiar with Jesus and the Bible, you can just flip to these places, underline whatever you want and circle it because we will jump a little bit. But we're going to look at these passages and then we're going to pull out just a couple practical things at the end that we can do to help organize our day planner and relationships. Sound good? You with me? Okay, good, good. So even from the time that Jesus was young, when he was little, we see that he had some priorities set up in his life when it came to his timing. Um, One of the biggest things in relationships we recognize is from Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was almost a teenager. He's about 12 years old. His family is, um, they're, they're, going up to Jerusalem to practice Passover. It's this huge celebration together, and the whole family goes. They celebrate Passover, and the family leaves. But they make one crucial mistake. They forget Jesus in Jerusalem. Kind of a big deal, right? We're going to trust you with the Son of God. Wait, where's Jesus? And, And here's the worst part. They don't recognize that he's not with them for about three days. So that means three days He's in Jerusalem. If you have a teen, you know, a, a 12-year-old in your house or you know one, would you leave them in a city by themselves for three? Would they survive? Well, not only does Jesus survive, he kind of thrives because, you know, the family freaks out. They obviously are like, oh, we got to get back. We got to go get him. And, and in Luke chapter 2, what we read in verse 46 is this. Three days later, when they finally discovered him in the temple sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. Why'd you need need to search? He asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? When Jesus was young, we see this eagerness to be with God the Father. Even from that young age, he's not freaking out about being left behind, is he? He's not, you know, sending heavenly texts to remind Mary and Joseph, come get me. He's hanging in the temple because when they find him, he's loving life, engaging with these teachers, engaging with his time with God. This was not just like in his teenage phase that he, I I did the Jesus thing when I was a teenager and that was good. No, this actually translates all the way up into his adulthood that he prioritizes his time with God as the primary thing that gets on his calendar every single day. And when we see, I mean, all the time, uh, one of my favorite passages is found in uh, the biography of Jesus written by Mark. In chapter one, Um, Mark's a great, great writer because he summarizes all these stories. And in the beginning of Mark chapter one, we see that Jesus is in kind of this town called Capernaum. It becomes his like home little place. And when he's in that town, um, he's healing some sick people. He ends up going to Peter's house. His mother-in-law's sick. So he heals his mother-in-law. And then when he heals the mother-in-law, everyone in the town's like, whoa, things are happening here. And so do you know what they do? They bring all their sick. Everyone who's hurt and everyone who's got demons and evil spirits in their life, they come to meet Jesus. And he spends all day healing people, delivering them from evil spirits, all day. That's a long day. Then he stops, sleeps, and in the morning, I love, I love this. All the news gets out. Everyone's now coming. 
And if you're looking to gain followers, this is what you do, right? Keep healing, people come. In verse 35 of chapter one of Mark, it says, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up, he went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That's why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Do you know what's funny about Jesus? He's not waking up ready to meet people. He's waking up ready to meet God. He, he needs to spend time with his father in prayer. And when the disciples who just are trying to figure out what's going on following him are like, oh, people are coming, the movement's happening. Look, they're, they're, from all their cities, they're coming in. Jesus is not concerned with the amount of people following. He's concerned here. He's saying, that's not why I'm here. This is not my priority, all these people. Another town needs to hear the news. We need to get going. It doesn't even say they went back to say goodbye to everybody or to explain to them a hundred different ways that, that they have to explain to them, this is why we can't make it and like come up with the fake excuses that we all do when we don't want to do something. We don't find that. He's just like, this is not what I'm supposed to do. We got to move on, guys. And that's what he does. Because on a personal level, I remind you, Jesus loved everyone equally but he didn't spend equal time with everyone. When it came to his followers, we got these 12 disciples who are all excited for Jesus. Let's get going. He's got a top three. This is, this is like the first MySpace top eight if you're a little older. You know what I'm saying here, right? You got to pick your people and like who's going to go up top. And if you missed that, oh, you missed a great season of social media where it began. Actually, I'm not sorry for you. It was the worst. He's got his top three, his top three guys, a man named Peter, a man named John, and a man named James. These are three that he pulled to come with him all the time. He had some of the most amazing and the most difficult conversations with these three guys. Um, he invited them to join him on things that he did not ask the rest of the disciples. And, and if he, the greatest picture of this, in my opinion, one of these amazing moments is actually in the passage that Katie had read for us from Matthew chapter 16 and 17. Um, we find in that passage this really unique moment. And leading into that passage, Jesus has just asked his disciples a very poignant question of who do other people think that I am? And then he says, okay, great. Who do you think that I am? And Peter has this bold moment where he says, you are Jesus you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus, the very Messiah and Son of God, looks at him and he says, nailed it. Like, you got it, man. You understand this. Right? What a cool moment. Now, if you are Peter in that moment, how are you feeling? You're feeling pretty good, right? Like, yes, Jesus, affirm me in front of everybody. I understand who he is. This is my man. And he's God. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. And in the passage... What we read is the moment after they declare him to be God, he says he's free to explain to them that he has to go to Jerusalem, that, that it's not going to end well there. He clearly explains it the way they understand. And in a wonderful BFF moment in Matthew 16, Peter, his best friend, in verse 22 it says, but Peter took him aside, right? This isn't a conversation for everybody. This isn't a side conversation. Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Could you imagine this moment? 
Come on, how confident do you have to be to take the very man you declared to be the Messiah of the entire nation that you belong to and be like, listen, we got to talk. We got to do a little aside. And you reprimand him. I like, oh man, reprimanding Jesus, this takes some, you know, confidence, we'll say. Uh, and, and, you know, he's pulling him aside like he's a six-year-old. He's grabbing egg rolls at the buffet with his hands, you know, and you're like, you don't do that. No, that's what I, I picture here. And Jesus turns to him and, and he calls him Satan, which is a very weird thing to say. Um, I mean, this is his ultimate enemy right now. He says, get behind me, Satan. And then it tells us something that I think we gloss over all the time when we read this passage. Um, and and, and I'll check out verse 23. It says, Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not God's point of view. And in some of your Bibles and in some of your translations, uh, Peter is using the word, the Greek word that he's using here means stumbling block, right? Stumbling block. Uh, the Greek word is actually skandalon. And, and it's really about things that cause other people to sin. It's used a couple other times in the New Testament, but it always has something to do with it's going to cause someone else to sin. And maybe it was just the different wording in this version where it's, you are a dangerous trap to me, but... In light of thinking of our circles that we have, of people in our life, in these spheres of influence of who we put on our day planner of time, I read this differently for the first time, and, and after reading it hundreds of times, it just jumped out different. And, and at this moment, Jesus told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, and he made it clear to them. And his best friend is basically saying, what are you talking about? We can't let this happen. You're the Messiah. Why would we go to Jerusalem? You're going to die there. Would you want your best friend to willingly go to their death? No. If they're truly your best friend, you're going to get in their face a little bit. You're going to say, there's a better option. There has to be another way. When your best friend, in, in this moment when Peter approaches Jesus, I've read it differently because I saw Jesus calling him a dangerous trap. I'm imagining in Jesus's moment of despair, if he's 100% human and experiences all that we experience and yet never sinned, in this moment, his best friend is telling him, you can't do this. I love you too much to let you go to your death. You cannot do this. Please, I'm begging you. We will not let this happen to you. I used to read this as a huge reprimand of you idiot. You have no idea what God wants. And the phrase, you're a dangerous trap for the first time I read, a pleading from Jesus that, Peter, we're so close, man. We are so tight. We are relational. You know me. I know you. We've shared everything. Later on, when Jesus is praying in the garden, we know that he prays to God, please let this cup pass from me. Jesus doesn't even want this all the time. Could you imagine not wanting something and your best friend tells you, I don't want this either? How much harder would it be to step into it? How much harder would it be to obey? And I now read this as a moment where Jesus is pleading with him saying, you cannot keep saying this because I might listen to you. You see, the people who are closest to us have way more influence in our lives than we ever give them credit for. The core people who are in our lives make a huge difference in the way that we think, in the way that we feel, in the way that we go with our life. 
Do you want to know where you're going? Look at the people who you're surrounded by, the closest people to you in your sphere of influence. And Jesus in this moment is like, listen, I love you enough that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you out on this one. But Peter loved him enough to say, I, I can't do this. There was enough trust in between them that Peter felt like he could pull Jesus aside. I don't see it as arrogance. I see it as we've had these conversations before. I see the love that they have for each other. You and I need people in our life who are actually going to tell us what we don't always want to hear. If all you have is people who say nice things to you and give you compliments and encouragements, they're not the best people for you. They're good people to have around, but that's not the people who are going to make you more Christ-like. I will tell you that. We need people who help sharpen us. And, And that's what this is. There was enough love and enough trust that they knew the relationship wasn't going to die. They could say the tough things. And I will say, if you read this, it's funny. It takes a couple days for it to pass down or to, for, the, uh, the, for things to settle. It's not like, oh, good, we love each other. This is wonderful. If you look at Matthew 17, verse 1, it tells us that six days later, Jesus took Peter and his two brothers. Six days later. Six days later. Could you imagine six days? I don't know if they're talking, not talking. That's a weird moment, isn't it? And then he's like, hey, let's go up on a mountain together. Mm. You just called me Satan. There's enough love, enough trust that all three of them joined. It says that six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up to a high mountain to be alone. Jesus is not about to reprimand them. He's about to share one of the most beautiful, intimate moments that he never shared with anybody else. Why? These were his core. These were his, these, his men, his guys, the ones that knew everything about him. The confrontation didn't disqualify them from this deep relationship, did it? It's not like Jesus went, oh, I'm going to call you Satan and I'm done with you. He says, would you come with me and experience this? The rest of the chapter is what we call this transfiguration where Jesus literally starts glowing in front of them with Moses, with Elijah, who appear these two amazing heroes of the Old Testament. And these core three guys, these are actually the guys that Jesus calls again to follow him when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to the 12 disciples, would you follow me? After this last supper that they celebrate, this last Passover Seder that they have, they go to the garden to pray. He says to the 12, you guys hang here, except you three come with me. There's something more. And when he goes off, we actually read this in in Mark chapter 14. He says he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He takes these three guys. He shares his deepest pain with them, doesn't he? You will not get to this place with everybody. You, you actually can't get to this place with everybody. And Jesus isn't at this place with everybody, is he? There's eight other guys that are a stone's throw away from him right now that they don't understand the true depth of Jesus' pain, but these three guys do. And that's okay because Jesus had a core group around him that he needed And within that core group, I keep mentioning these 12 other guys that he has following him. You know, this 12 total. Um, This is a circle that he had. His 12 disciples. He knows them. He knows their stories. He's chosen them. And, uh, you know, what's funny about this is uh, he doesn't pick them haphazardly. We actually read that when Jesus picks these guys, he's got a bunch of followers. He goes up to be with God and he prays. God, who in the world am I going to surround myself with? Have you ever prayed about who you're going to be friends with? 
this is something Jesus did. We should follow this. And so Jesus prays, who am I going to be friends with? Who am I going to invest in? And I guarantee you he would have not picked this group if it was the most famous guys, the most uh, spectacular. Who's going to have the most influence? He picked the worst guys of a group that were not going to get along and said, oh, I'll take this. This is who I want because God does amazing things through that. And over and over, you know, he, he takes these guys and they're with him when he does these miracles. He feeds all these crowds, right? Do you know who's picking up the bread and getting the real experience of the miracle? It's the disciples. When Jesus goes around, and, and he's great because he goes around and he teaches all these stories. And you know what the stories are doing? They're confusing the garbage out of everyone who's around like, uh, what is he talking about? The disciples are the only group that get to pull Jesus aside and say, uh, what are you talking about? And he says, oh, let me explain. And he gives them a little bit more of himself than he does the circle of people that are around. When they're on a boat and the wind is howling, the seas are raging, he gets up and he calms it all with his voice. The only people who see it are the disciples. They have access to something that most of the circle and the crowds around do not. And, and it's just beautiful. When they're at that Passover Seder, he tells them in John 13 to 17, if you ever want to read that, those passages, they're the, some of the most beautiful chapters of Jesus' full call to love. Go read them. Why would the disciples try to love so much? Because this is something Jesus intimately trusted them with. But, but he had those three. He had those 12. Then we read he actually had 72 uh, followers as well. There's this giant group that follows. He's got 72 of them. And he's got this community. And in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, we read, Now the Lord chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places to visit. This is like his hype squad going ahead, okay? And um, they're, they're building Jesus' coming, except they go and they've got uh, power and authority that Jesus has given them, they actually go and they start healing people and they're casting out demons and towns are like, what are you doing? They come back to Jesus so excited. They're like, oh, things are happening. And, and he's encouraged by this, right? He's, he's given them authority. Now, he's not gonna pick just a random 72 people and say, go do crazy things in the name of Jesus, is he? No, I'm sure he knew their names. I'm sure he knew some of their stories. But did he know them the same way he knew the disciples or this core three? I don't think so. I think there was a different amount of time, but there was enough love, enough trust that he knew these 72, these pairs, accountability and community, this is important. And then, of course, after the community, we find a crowd. Wherever there's a miracle, there's always a crowd. I mean, a free meal? How many times does Jesus feed people with a kid's lunch? All the time. People are always going to be drawn to this, and so Jesus, it seems like, always has crowds around him. He loves them just as much as everybody else, but he does not spend time with them. Because just as quickly as crowds come, do you know what happens to crowds? They leave. They leave. You know the people who hang around us that are like, oh, I'm all in, and the moment they find out something about us they don't like, they're gone. This happens to Jesus. In John chapter 6, we see that, um, you know, his teaching got tough. When following him got costly, and it says at this point, Many of the disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and he asked, are you also going to leave? Right? Relationships are tough. Following Jesus is tough. Not everybody in our circles of influence are going to want to do this. And Jesus does not chase them, does he? It says that so many left him in this passage, if you read it. He does not chase them. He loves them. 
but he doesn't give them the same time that he turns to the 12. Crowds are not committed. They celebrate him as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and then they cheer and scream for his very crucifixion later on that week. Crowds have no vested interest in you. Crowds don't care about you. When I look back at my 2004 calendar, and I think about the lens of Jesus, that he had this core built on the foundation of his time with his father that took priority, and then this core of people, then this, you know, um, giant circle of 12 that he's investing in, and then this community that's bigger of 72, and then this circle that's just the crowd. When I take that lens and look at my calendar, I can see where I messed up royally. Number one, I did not prioritize Jesus at all. I prioritized his work, but not him. I could see that I gave everybody at that new job the time that I wanted to be friends with everyone. I wanted everyone to like me. Uh, and, And you know if you've ever switched jobs, everyone wants your ear when you switch a job to get what they want because they couldn't get it from the last person, so they're going to try to get it from you. The people who approach you first at a new job are usually the ones you don't always want to trust because they couldn't get it done before. Now they're trying to, and they're going to use you. Is there vested interest? It's weird, isn't it? I listened to everyone, and I gave everyone what I thought was core time when I never should have. And so Jesus loved everyone equally, but he didn't spend equal time with everyone. I think if we could learn to do this, it's not in here. Um, If we learn to do this, you're going to piss a lot of people off, just so you know. Because some people are going to think they're in different circles than you you have them. Some people are going to think they're so close, but they shouldn't be. You're going to have to cut some relationships because you've got folks at the core that cannot be there. Jesus starts with his relationship with God, and I am pleading with you here today, this morning, online, in person. I am begging you, if you do not have a regular rhythm of being with Jesus, your relationships are going to be all jacked up around you. We'll say it over and over every week. If you do not have this in, if you're thinking, I don't have time, you do. Put it on your calendar. I'm not kidding. Literally, get out your calendar and prioritize your center. Prioritize your center. Prioritize your center of being with Jesus. If you have to book appointments three weeks out for lunch with somebody to get it, you need to do that with Jesus. You need to do that with Scripture. You need to put in your calendar a block that says, time with God, and when the rest of your family shares your calendar, looks at it, they're like, what is this? It's my time with God, don't bug me. I can't afford to do that. You can't afford not to do that. You just can't. And it's always going to be the first thing to go. I stayed up too late watching the Eagles Giants. I didn't get that time this morning. Yeah, people are going to pay for that around you. Prioritize your center. This is why we do soaping together, going through scripture as we can. This is so important. The second thing that I would encourage you to do is identify your core. Identify your core. Who are the people that are the most influential in your life? And I will say there's two steps to this because you need to identify who your core is, but you also need to ask the second question is, is this who I should really be around? Are these the qualities that I want to see in my life? Because you will pick them up. Anyone, uh, come on, adults in here, how many bad habits have you picked up from people you wish you didn't hang out with? 
If you could go back to your teenage self and said, them? My parents told me they were trouble, but I didn't want to listen. Would, would you go back and change some of that? Yeah, we all would. I wish I could go back and change me because I was the one who influenced in a negative way. I was the problem for some of my friends. I shouldn't have been in their core. It's just the truth. You need to have a core. Right now, for those of you who are in middle school, um, you're in, in, in middle school and you're in high school, even in college, your time and the friendships that you have around you are far more crucial than you think because the people around you influence you more than you think. Who are those people that you're giving access to into your life? That you're sharing things with and they're sharing things with you. If they don't ask you questions about your life, they're not for you. If you're doing all the asking, that's a good indicator they shouldn't be in your core, okay? I know that probably sounds harsh. For adults, listen to the advice I gave to teenagers. Same applies to you. You need to get your core together. If you're here and you're in a relationship and you're married, your spouse or partner should be the number one person in your core. They should know more about you than anyone else who's around you. They should be it that you focus on, but they should not be the only. You need people outside of them. And so I can tell you, I am so grateful. My wife is my core. And there's about two or three other guys that have been running with me. One of them even for longer than I've known my wife. He's been in my core. And no one calls me on more garbage than he does. Oh, I love it. But he has complete access to my life, just like my wife does in these handful of other guys. Does everybody have that access to me? Nope. I don't give it to them. They've not earned that love or that trust. That's just the truth. But you have to identify your circle. And if you're, or your core, if you're at a place where you are married and you're like, but I can't trust my spouse with that stuff, you need to start getting counseling because you need to. You need to trust and have enough trust in your marriage because it's the most important gift that God has given you if you're down that road. If as you grow into singleness as an adult, let me tell you, you need people around you just as much um, men and women who will encourage and bless you. Um, men, you need men around you. Women, you need women around you. You just do. You just do. Not only do you need that core, you need the circle. Identify your circle. Like this is your group of 12. This is your, um, for at Crossbridge, these are our small groups, right? A larger group that's got your back. They know what's going on with you, but it's not as deep. If you, um, you're spending less time with this group than you are with the core, but they have more access to you and more influence than the community that's out there, think of like sports teams, right? People who run on a sports team together, they're pretty tight. They're like a family but there's still those tightness that, that happens on a fam, in a family, but there's still this greater sense of we care. That's okay to have this like, wait, so you're, I'm, I'm like leveling my friends? Yes, that's exactly what you're doing. You're prioritizing your day planner. You're looking at who gets your time. You're going to have to say no to people or wait. It's a gift from God. You need this. If you're not plugged into a small group here, I hope you're in a spiritual community that's going after Jesus because you and I desperately need it. That's why we have them. It's not just so that you have one thing to do. It's so that you have a spiritual family going with you because the second, or the, that, that community part, we all need to identify our community. This is your class if you're in school. I'm the class of 2029. Great, that's, that's your, you know this larger group. You identify with them. This is Crossbridge for me. I love this community. I love you. I love saying that I'm part of this group. 
Do I know all of you equally? Nope. Will I? Nope. Do I want to? Nope. It just, that's just the truth. Do I resonate and connect with some of you differently? Absolutely. Do I sit here and plan, you know, at home, well, who do I want to put? No, because most of my core isn't actually not part of Crossbridge because I've been running with them much longer. Are there some that have moved into that area of trust and love? Without a doubt. And I thank God for them. But I'm so grateful that I can say no to you when you need time sometimes because I haven't gotten the time that I need to help sharpen me. Our core is Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You need someone who's going to make you sharp. Being a pastor could be draining sometimes. So yeah, there are times I have to schedule out times to say I don't have that because I want to be as full as I can, as sharp as I can for you. But that means I have to say no to some so that I can say yes to you when I'm at my best because if I gave everybody core time, I don't have any time and you get the worst pastor ever. I will burn out and I will leave. I don't want that. I don't think, I hope you don't want that. These are our circles. And then the crowd, let me tell you. We're going to close with they love you. But they hate you. They celebrate you. But they will cheer for your downfall at the same exact time. The people who love you, the people who hate you. These are the people online that, why in the world do you engage with them in comments you think far more of their opinion than you should. It's a waste of your time. Don't give them more influence in your life than they deserve. Be cool with identifying the crowd and saying, you don't get my time. Your comments, your um, voice is not even worth the time to respond. And I love you enough not to respond because it won't be loving. You know what I'm talking about. When you let that person from outside have influence on your life and all you have to do is go home and talk about it and how horrible they are and all this, but you barely ever see them, you've allowed them into a circle that they should never have time for and you have killed the time with your core or with your you know, circle of people that need that time and you need that time, but you've given it away to the crowd. Stop searching for the approval of the crowd. And when you look at your day planner, this one little guide that Ruby came up saying, Dad, do you know they have it? And I went, oh, I do. Can I teach you how much of a gift it is that Jesus loves everyone equally, but he doesn't give everyone equal time? I'm not saying you need self-care when I say find your grounding. You need self-care. No, you need Jesus' time. You need time in the word, time in prayer, time without other people so that you're the best when you step into those other areas. You don't prioritize it. No one else will. I can't make your core. I can't make your circle. I can't make anything for you. All I can plead with you is would you have a planner where you literally put in how much time you spend with who and see how it impacts you. The people who are around you, who are closest to you, will influence you more than you ever think. And you will make wrong choices because as Jesus sat around the table at the Last Supper, he took this Passover Seder and he celebrated it with his betrayer in his circle with someone who was out to get him, who took advantage of him. Will you go 12 for 12? Nope, not even Jesus did. That's okay. Some people change. You can move them. You know what the grace in that is? 
you change to? Who will you change to be like? Jesus looked at his disciples and he held up the bread at Passover and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And in that amazing intimate moment in John, he said to them, my my new command to you is that you would love one another like I've loved you. Go and show this first to each other and they're gonna know that you follow me by the way you love each other, but then you're gonna do that with others. So you better figure this out. And this is my body that's broken for you and, and what a gift he's given to us. We celebrate that today. And then when he held up the cup, he said, in this, this is my blood that's poured out for the forgiveness of sin. And we know that sin is simply not loving like Jesus loved and loving what he loved. And in all our relationships, we're gonna put him in different spots and we're gonna love bad. (laughs) We're gonna love wrong. And so we can celebrate as we come to a table, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And you know how we celebrated at Crossbridges around a table together. And the reason we do this together is because as a Giants fan, as an Eagles fan, I love celebrating Christ together because that is way more important than a win or a loss. I can congratulate you because I love you and I don't care enough because it's not a priority for me. You are. Christ is a grounding and we gather around a table looking at people who will mess up and we say, I forgive you as Christ forgave me. I will love you. We need to figure out where we stand. Have some DTRs with our relationships. Who are you allowing access to you? Would you stand with me as we celebrate communion together? Jesus, I love that you so love all people equally and yet you don't equally spend time with everyone when you're here on earth but one of the attributes about who you are is you are omnipresent you are everywhere at all times and what a gift that you you died and you rose again so that that we would have access to the father at all times that we can all get equal time with you because you love us and we, all of us, are in your core and you want us to be there. Lord, where we have a lack of love, would there be a confession of that before we approach the table? Jesus, we want to celebrate you as we lift you high.